When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. On Friday, June 16th, and June 16th, every year, we celebrate uh, a holiday that is the world's largest literary-based celebration, uh, and that holiday is called Bloomsday. Uh, and if you're listening and you've never heard of Bloomsday, I'm not surprised, because not everybody has, but it's actually a big deal here in Philadelphia where we report, record the podcast. It's the day where we celebrate the uh, the symbolic odyssey of the character Leopold Bloom in James Joyce's novel Ulysses, which was a real turning point for literature in the 20th century. Uh, and you go and people read, you know, selections from the book and they read all day long and you hear these stories uh, of, of Ireland, of Dublin, in the turn of the century. And the story, while about a very ordinary everyman, lines up with all of the beats of the most epic quest story that we have in our collective myth consciousness, and that's the Odyssey. And it's striking me that 21 episodes into this podcast, we've hardly even broached the subject. So tonight we're going to talk about Homer's Odyssey and the legacy that it's left on storytelling. I love that intro. Thanks. I absolutely love it. And I want to ask a question inspired by that intro. Yeah, please. That maybe we can come to at the end of the episode. Okay. What is the greatest form of treasure? And I want us to think about that. Let's not answer that right now, but what is the greatest form of treasure? Let that ruminate behind the Yeah, meditate the scenes. on that one, guys. And I'd like to come back to it as we conclude and wrap up this episode and uh, I also want to say that I think of all of Homer's work, and to be clear, who is Homer? He is definitely the father of the Simpsons. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, but Homer, he, Homer Simpson. He's also an ancient Greek poet who is um, given the credit of writing down two very famous works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, 
Uh, this is, I think, around about like six, seven hundred BCE before the Common Era. Um, it's not clear if Homer really existed. If it did, it's not clear if he wrote these poems. Kind of like Shakespeare. Yeah, um, I think even I think Homer even more shrouded in course, mystery and yeah. uncertainty because he's so much more ancient. And yeah, has, has, uh, uh, evidence. And he, let's assume for the sake of argument, rather than getting bogged down in did Homer exist, let's assume that he did. The idea of the Iliad and the Odyssey was that he was the first to write down stories that were passed generation to generation um, through verbal uh, just retelling. And the way that it was written was written with what are called mnemonic devices, which are ways to help make the poem more memorizable. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and you've had some semblance of an education, you can recite almost verbatim, the entire Iliad or the Odyssey. That's amazing. If you're anyone in the ancient world, you know it and you know it well, and it's being told. What do I mean? I mean by the ancient Mediterranean world. So Greece, Rome, Egypt, Morocco, all of these areas, the stories of the Iliad and the stories of the Odyssey shaped the very fabric of thought, of culture, and I would also argue have reverberated uh, into today. This reminds me of, and I don't mean to boomerang too early in the episode, but did oh, you let's ever boomerang? Did you ever read the Ray Bradbury novel Fahrenheit 451 or see the film? I have done both. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of how that. And spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read it: wonderful book by Ray Bradbury, really amazing thriller writer, uh, fiction writer, jack of all trades, and that. Uh, but it takes place in a kind of dystopian future where books are outlawed and books are burned, uh, Fahrenheit 451 being the temperature at which paper burns. Uh, and in the end of the novel, you find uh, that the character who you've been following this entire time uh, comes upon this community of people who are like living books, and each one of them has committed a piece of literature to memory so that they can recite it to the next generation. So it's a rebirth of oral tradition in a way that it cannot be extinguished. And that makes me think of how the Odyssey, as an oral tradition in the Iliad as well, could make its way through so many generations just based on memory and how literature and stories really do live in our bones. And we can, we can craft them so that they, they live in our memories and they also influence the world outside of us and are influenced by the world outside us. Yeah, and I mean, well, here's the thing. Uh, these stories were first originally, whoever authored them, the prevailing sort of classical thesis on the Iliad and the Odyssey is they predate literature. Right. Before people knew how to write, these stories were being told. Homer was the one that put it down to parchment, mm -hmm. and hence, you know, uh, did an extra immortalizing these already immortal tales. Amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, it reverberates, you know, through today. And I would really like to talk about the American Odyssey. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So I want to talk about the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Woo! Now, one of the things the Coen brothers who uh, wrote, directed it. Um, if you're not familiar with them, they did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, 
I mean, these, raising Arizona, raising it like true uh, grit. These guys are men. both critically acclaimed, commercially successful, and cult hits. They're huge in in fringe scene. They're huge in the mainstream. They're huge in the art circle. I mean, they are you know some amazing modern storytellers. There's an incredible uh, anecdote that I'll have to look up the facts on and post on social media. But I think they fundraised for their first film by like going door to door. That's amazing. Something like that. The original form of crowdsourcing. I'll, I'll share when I get the full story. Yeah. So, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou does an interesting thing in the credits is it says, point blank, right out of the gate, this is the Odyssey. Yeah. You know, it's it, ballsy. You know, before we even get into it, they don't leave any like stretch of the imagination. They want to draw a direct line from Homer to this movie. Right. And, um, you know, and I think that's part of the fun of it is that now we get to look at this movie from the prism. So many people w- would not do that. They would be inspired by the Odyssey and they would do it and leave uh, leave others to interpret it. Yeah. And then leave people to feel self-righteous when they figure it out. Yeah. Air quotes around figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. But for this, it, they let us know. So, you know, just some main beats that I think take from it. The main character is Ulysses something McEverett. Ulysses Everett McGill. Wow, I fucked that up really bad. Wow. (laughs) Ulysses Everett McGill. Now, Ulysses is the Latin form of Odysseus. Now, the main character in the Odyssey is Odysseus, translated by the Romans to Ulysses. So right out of the gate, the main character is Odysseus. So what are some characteristics of this guy? Want to take a minute and dive into to the him? Yeah. All right. So he is obsessed with his hair. Yeah. So he's got a little bit of vanity. He's tricksy and wily. He is uh, a self-gift uh, of gab. Yeah. He is clearly, in most scenarios, the smartest one there and but leading. But makes sure that people know that. Absolutely. Yeah. And is obsessed with, you know, finding his way back home now, the entire point of the Odyssey is the Trojan War is over. Odysseus needs to go back home, yet he offends uh, Poseidon, mm-hmm. and Poseidon makes him cast at sea, and he has this long, horrible journey home. Right, full of obstacles and you know just hijinks here and there. Yeah, and I think in O Brother, Where Art Thou, we see a American version of Odysseus. Yeah, I agree. And an amazing thing that you see in O Brother, Where Art Thou? Where with a less gifted filmmaker, you might have seen uh, just like, let's take the Odyssey and put it in modern day and let's have these characters do it in America. And you could do it very simple and surfacey, and it'd still be a really fun romp or a road trip movie. Uh, it's just kind of a fun idea. We could do like a... It would be Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. Okay, anyway. Yeah, uh, that movie's already been made. I was thinking made. like a buddy comedy. Oh, okay. Like a, like a sex farce. Okay. Um, but what we get in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is the fact that we have there at the beginning, this is based on the Odyssey, gives us one way in to know that we're watching something mythic. Uh, and then we see over and over again, we see that it's set in the South in like the 1920s, you would say? 1920-something? Yeah, it, it's in... Early, you know, early 20th century. Right, but pre-Depression. Uh, uh, and we see symbols of pieces of Americana that are, in their own way, mythic. So the railroads and the chain gang 
and uh, you know the radio station out in the middle of nowhere and hitchhiking, all of these things that are so very uh, indicative of the American, um, you know, the American West or the American South, the the kind of bootstraps, uh, rebellious sort of uh, spirit that you get. And all of these symbols of that Americana, that this stuff that is ingrained in our mythology. And so we have, you know, the one layer that's like, here's this ancient myth that everybody knows that is forming the basis of this story. And let's steep it in the things that are most uh, resonant with us. And that gives it the license to go a lot deeper than, obviously, a buddy comedy or a sex farce. And we get to deal with race relations. We get to deal with issues of justice it's it's pretty amazing the conclusions that we reach in this story, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Right? No, go there. Don't, yeah. don't go there. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is the confluence and conflict of um, or fate in this. Who is really in charge of this story? Are we watching? You know, a bunch of you know people being you know played by played by the gods pushed from one scenario to another without a firm grasp of control over their own destiny? Or are we watching self-determinative liberals taking charge of their own path, carving their own way, and based upon their rugged individualism, things work out? Are we seeing a place where there is magic and myth at hand? Or are we seeing the cold, rational hand of, um, you know, of pure empirical reasons? And Ulysses kind of... um, he plays with this because at most times he is sort of the intellectual skeptic. Right. He's looking down at the those that think about tradition and think of things in terms of myth. You know, he's the first to point out in their sort of uh, island of the locust eater scene where his the lotus two, eaters, yeah, yeah, those two companions go and they get saved when they're entranced by this song, and he's the first to point out. By the way, you might be saved in the eyes of the Lord, but not in the laws of Mississippi. Right. And it's important that that Everett or Ulysses he he stands you know a, a head and shoulders above his his friends in terms of uh, sort of modern reasoning uh, because his companions really carry a lot of magical thinking. Uh, Belmar is or Delmar is like easily convinced that they turn Pete into a toad when he sees a toad crawl out of and the clothes I, that Pete left behind. As an audience and, member, you're not sure right, if that's what happened. Because you've seen things that are not completely realistic because it's a mythicized South. And then you get that crossroads scene where uh, they pick up, is it Tommy? Tommy. Tommy. And he's like, yeah, I sold my soul to the devil, which is another piece of like very American mythology. Sell your soul to the devil at the crossroads to be able to play guitar really well, play the blues. That's a, a really solid piece of American mythology, but it's magical thinking. Okay, it's all yeah. around him. Yeah, let's let's go into that Tommy scene a little bit because yes. I think that highlights it. So they come up to the crossroads. They pick up Tommy. He's a hitchhiker. So they've got three white men picking up an African-American man. Mm-hmm. In the very beginning of the movie, we see a chain gang. The only white people that are in it are the three main characters escaping. Everyone right. else is an African-American. So we're already seeing the sort of interplay of racial uh, reality that, you know, the African-American men can't escape, but the white men can. And keeping in mind that this is placed, you know, slavery is still living memory for many of the characters. And we're seeing the kind of evolution of modern day slavery in the chain gang and prison work camps. Yeah. Uh, so that's a powerful image. Absolutely. And so we see them then pick this character up 
What has this character done? He has traded his soul to the devil. And Everett Ulysses Odysseus instantly goes into a long treaty about what the devil actually looks like. And he describes him in the most absurd mythic terms. Literal terms, yeah. You know, red scaly skin, skin a tail, horns. With a forked tongue. Yeah, Diana. with hooves for feet and things like that. And Tommy's just and like a pitchfork of hate or yeah, something like and, that. And Tommy's just like, no, you know, he actually you know, just looked like a dude. You know, I think he even said he had a dog. Oh, <laughs> I, you know. And Tommy's just like, no, you know, that's that's not right. You know, the devil just looks like us, mm-hmm. right? And so then you you're left to wonder: Did this character Tommy really see the devil, right? Or did he sell himself out to the white man because right. he says he's white? Right, the devil is a white man. So he says that. So did he just actually meet a white man and and sell his soul? So hey, I I could be part of the chain gang or I could be a musician. So I'm right. gonna sell my soul. And it it plays on the racial dynamic while adding the mythic component. Yeah. It flips the 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 rational, more material thinking um, you know, Everett makes him go into the era of the myth to sound smart only to be confronted with who is the devil? Well, really it's him. And Mm. and it's such an interesting part of the complexity of the philosophies that are being smashed into each other at this crossroads. And in this movie, there's constantly different like modes of thinking running into each other at full steam, um, you know, and combating each other, but it always does so in a playful way. Yeah. Like you never feel like you're being preached to. You always feel invited. It's always clever. You always kind of want to chuckle at it, even though there's so much nuance and so much depth happening. Yeah. And it's structured in a way too. You know, it follows obviously the the course of the source material, but it's structured in such a way that you almost feel like this could be a tall tale that you heard around a campfire that you know, Ulysses himself, Ulysses Everett McGill is standing there around the campfire being like, and then this happened. And then we got out of the chain gang. And then we met this blind man who was on the railroad tracks and he gave us this uh, this little piece of wisdom. And then this, and then this, and then this. And it gets grander and grander and the, the magic becomes more and more embellished. And you have to imagine that that's what people were experiencing when they were gathered around, you know, those early fires oh, yeah. telling the tales of the Trojan War and the journey home. And it's kind of amazing that we can create that same sense of community with a story about our origins as Americans uh, that, that has that same feeling. Right. Now, can we flash forward to another scene I want to talk about? Yes. So at the very end of the movie, after the big climax at the scene where, you know, they they end up singing in front of the congregation, they get a pardon. The soggy bottom boys. Yeah. They, he rushes out the suitor and defeats the KKK member, fake mm-hmm. government official, and all of that. And, you know, in many ways you'd think, wow, this movie's over. It's right. come full circle. But there's another scene in which now, now that Everett has passed all of the tests, he has expelled the suitors from his house, a direct reference to when Odysseus gets back to his kingdom, Ithaca in ancient Greece. He finds that a bunch of men are trying to court his wife, thinking that he's dead so that they marry her, they can now become king, and he has to expel them with his cleverness. Well, now that this trial has been passed, 
The last trial that he has is he needs to procure the ring for his wife. She won't remarry him unless he gives her this ring. So he goes to their home. And when we get there, the entire time they've been chased by this uh, sheriff who or prison warden, whatever, in dark sunglasses. And to me, he represents the cruel hand of fate. That's constantly there and constantly chasing you. And you're trying to, you're Ulysses, you're going to outsmart it, you're going to outsmart it, but you can't ever outsmart the cruel hand of fate. When he gets there, he says, hey, no, 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 we've been pardoned. It was on the radio. We're not criminals anymore. And the guy says, I go by a different form of justice. Right. And the way I read that too since in the in the Odyssey, Odysseus, you know, crosses you know crosses paths with Poseidon and angers Poseidon, and he's the one who is, uh, you know, at his neck every step of the way, really thwarting his causes to get back home. That the uh, the warden he really does represent that Poseidon like figure, who in the Odyssey, of course, is a divine figure, but then in O Brother, Where Art Thou is a figure of the law of man. Uh, and so, but those, he's, you know, but th- though he's not, right. he specifically says, oh, the laws of man have exactly. relinquished you. And then he says, those aren't the laws that I follow. Exactly. Which is that moment where you're like, ah, oh, light bulb. Now, what I find supremely ironic and beautiful about that scene is what happens next to this well, character who lines up with Poseidon. Well, so Everett falls to his knees and he prays to God saying, please, I've been bad. I haven't always talked to you. Um, Please come and save me. And then a rush of water comes, washes away, you know, Poseidon, essentially the, the, this other divine, this cruel hand of fate. Right. And then he is there. What does Everett immediately do? As soon as he finds himself a log and he's holding on to there with his friends, they've surpassed one last trial and they say, wow, God answered your prayers. And he's just like, don't be dumb. That wasn't God. Yeah. I knew they were flooding this. Uh, it's to form a hydroelectric dam. Right. And he goes on to a speech on how this dam will help modernize, mis- modernize, wow, tough word, modernize Mississippi and help bring material wealth, help bring electricity, science, education, that he talks about the death of mythopoetic thinking, yeah. the death of of aspiring to the ancient and you know um, you know more uh, ruthless type of morality and gods, you know that this other character, this sheriff represents, and I find that to be the the, the scene in which the philosophies come full circle. They come right at each other. It's it's hypocritical, right? Like you know, but ever it's a hypocrite. Well, I would say rather than hypocritical, I, I find it to be a really wonderful irony in, in two ways. One in which the the wave is what happens to save our Odysseus in in contrast to the source material where the, wave is the what water fucks is him. always what pushes him further enemy. away. Yeah. Yeah. It's what actually saves his life. Uh, and, and the irony of the fact that even though uh, Everett, Ulysses may... Uh, may say, okay, yeah, we're going to modernize. We're going to issue out all this magical thinking. We did see a significant transformation in his character. We saw true repentance and we saw true redemption for him. And even if, you know, he can wash it all away, pun intended, we know that this character is morally transformed. 
from his past, and he's going to move forward differently, right? Because it was a genuine scene. Uh, yeah, no, see, I don't know if I, that's a really, really good question, and one that I am not necessarily uh, had pre-thought out. I took it as a direct, like, so uh, that America is at its heart a combination of hyper-rational realists who are technologists, who are innovators, and um, deep religious thinkers, and that and that that those two elements of our culture, both the real and the superstition, collide, absolutely, and, and collide with each other. And in this character, in that moment, collide with each other effortlessly. At the end of the day, the rational will always supersede the superstition. Because if you're capable of thinking in both tracks simultaneously, superstition will always break down to the rational. Absolutely. But in the toughest moments, you're going to go right back to that superstition to try to get you through it. I think you have hit the nail on the head, exactly. And I think what we, what we come to in a conclusion with this character is less of a hypocrisy and more of a duality. Yeah, hypocrisy is, is too harsh of a term. Right. Because hypocrisy he be- has like ill intent. I don't think there's any ill intent there. I think he begins as a hypocrite. And I think he ends the narrative with a, with a bit of a duality, letting those two parts of himself live in concert with one another. Right. In harmony. Because think of America's history. Who came to America to form it? People that were deeply religious and couldn't worship and people that were deeply skeptical of religion and couldn't express it. Right. You know, and those two forces are very prevalent in our society. And Everett in that scene, while staring down the cruel hand of fate is there and divine intervention is what saves him. There's also the rational reason why it all happened that way. Absolutely. And it happens simultaneously, even though Everett does call it specifically, if I remember, a moment of weakness, his prayer. Yeah. You know, like, and I think that's the thing that I I think is a little different from Everett and Odysseus. Odysseus uses cunning and guile to go around his enemies, but he doesn't use cunning and guile on his friends. Whereas Everett uses cunning and guile on his friends and enemies alike, and he gets outsmarted, where Odysseus is never outsmarted. Right. Everett gets outsmarted in many turns, you know, in this movie. Right. Are you referring to uh, the Cyclops? Yeah. Uh, 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 Dan T, Big Dan T, I think his name Played is. Played by John Goodman. Played by John Goodman, outsmarts him. Not Se- in the end. Several, so uh, not in the end, but yeah. Um, but he outsmarts him in that scene. Sure. Um, then there's the scene where they go and they meet uh, one of the character's cousins and gets the chains off. He gives them food. Oh, yeah. But he betrays them. He's outsmarted by that. Um, we're in a real tight spot. Yeah. Oh, man, we're in a real tight spot. Yeah, we're in a real tight spot. Uh, there's other point. I mean, he's clearly outsmarted by the suitors temporarily. Right. And, and in reality, he didn't actually have a plan to outsmart the suitors. It just kind of happened for yeah. him. And he comes off often as a, a little bit of... A little bit more pomp and circumstance than actual like deep intelligence, which Odysseus is is definitely the he's the smart one. He he's one of the most witty and intelligent heroes of Greek mythology. Yeah, in Odysseus, there are a few main uh, super themes. Um, avoid death. Death is the worst thing to happen to life is a huge theme in the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, so much when Odysseus goes to the underworld 
and he sees his friend Achilles. Achilles pretty much says, uh, this place is terrible. You don't want none of this. Yeah. So avoid death at all costs. Um, you know, the cunning of man can only get you so far. Reverence to the gods in conjunction with the cunning of man will get you there. However, Odysseus is also a treatise on the individual right. and individualism. And that you, the idea of the individual as a Greek unit capable of social change, capable of greatness, um, which was a radically new idea in the ancient world, which were all very collectivist societies. Right. This idea of Greek individualism uh, starts to emerge, and Odysseus is about that. Where, um, you know, then lastly, family is the big theme there, too. Yeah. You always want to get back to your family no matter what. Whereas I think the big theme in in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, I don't think it's the same. So cunning and guile do not always win. Divine intervention, their biggest tra- challenge, the biggest hurdle, when they have the nooses around their neck, divine yeah. intervention, outside forces, uh, building the hydroelectric dam, whatever it was is what saved it, not uh, his his own intelligence. Um, you know, when it comes to, he had the whole idea to sing the song that saves them, like, let's do this. You know, let's sing the song. Actually, I'm sorry. He took Tommy's idea and said, oh, well, I've got a way to make that happen. It wasn't his idea or his plan. Right. It was another plan. Um, the sirens totally get him. The sirens do not get Odysseus. Even when he does defeat the does defeat John Goodman's character in the end, it's more happenstance. It's more accident than actually his his doing because he throws the flag. He catches the flag. And then it's the cross that happens to fall over in a direct parallel, of course, to Odysseus burning out the Cyclops's eye with a torch. Yep. Uh, a which flaming is the, cross falls which is, on our, our Cyclops in the film. Yeah, which is the whole event that starts the Odyssey. A bad storm. Police Odysseus yeah, is there. He's confronted with the Cyclops. The Cyclops is killing them. He kills, he blinds the Cyclops and escapes. The Cyclops is the son of Poseidon, and then Poseidon right. curses Odysseus which is the whole thing that sets the Odyssey into motion. Um, you know, in this, they do end up getting back at the Cyclops, John Goodman's character, but you're right. He happened to be there. Yeah. They didn't go there. So every triumph that he has is more or less an accident. Right, which I think, you know, that being very different from the Odyssey, um, I think speaking it out loud and coming back, so much of fortune in America is accidental. It's luck. As is, so much is our ill fortune and our bad luck. So much of who we are and how we get to be in the system that we have just happens to be if you were there at the time when the good or bad thing happened. There's an element of just randomness to Everett and the things that happened to him and his ability to cope and deal with it that's uniquely American and great. Right. Whereas... Odysseus had to conquer nature to get home. Well, now, you know, early 20th century America, much of nature is conquered. These are new challenges that he had to face. Right. They're socioeconomic. They're, um, you know, they're, are, they're spiritual, they're intellectual, and he has to confront these challenges in order to get his family back. Absolutely. There's another thing that I want to touch on in O Brother, Where Art Thou? as, re- as it relates to the Odyssey. And that's, uh, you know, we were looking for this when we went into rewatching the movie because I think we'd both not seen it in a while. And we were watching it this week and we were like, where's the underworld scene? You know, where's the scene where Odysseus goes to the underworld and he meets Tiresias and like... 
sees his buddy Achilles. Achilles yeah, and, where yeah. is this? Yeah. And we're like, oh, there's not really an underworld scene. And then we kind of grabbed each other at the same time, and we were like, of course there's an underworld scene. It's when our our heroes, our three heroes, uh, Ulysses, Delmar, and Pete, stumble upon a massive KKK rally. And it does this to show the you know, the, the painful and hateful underbelly of America, even in a time where things are modernizing, where we have these, these really difficult racial divides that still persist in our country. And this is a really, uh, this is a painful symbol of it. The white supremacists who, who still gather to this day to proclaim their hate for people of other colors uh, and who will, you know, perpetrate awful violence against them. And so our characters stumble upon this, this underworld that lives right alongside us. And I think that's the most powerful way that Coen Brothers could have done that because this isn't a story about, like, actually magically going to hell and, like, meeting the dead and whatever. This is a story about the, the myths that plague us and the, the things that we wish were still myths, but they're not. They're our true underworld. Yeah, I I think for my not-so-humble opinion, that's my favorite scene in the entire movie. You know, and and I think because of it, because we were looking for the underworld and didn't think it, and then it was there, aha. So if an American could travel to the land of the dead, the damned, the cursed, those that have no true life where nobility and virtue have abandoned them. And identity. If you could travel there, it would be a KKK rally where they're about to hang an innocent African-American man just because they don't like the color of his skin. That is the closest thing to the underworld as it's written in Homer that we could see. And I think the Coen brothers were right. I think right from the gate, they they play with themes of race and then they confront it head on, you know, in that scene. And I don't think they confront it in a way that is truly um, prone to change. They confront it in the way that those characters had to confront it. They can't defeat the underworld as Odysseus cannot. They cannot defeat the KKK, but man, they can get their friend out of there. Yeah. And we can lampoon it while we're doing it, too. We can, I mean, I don't mean to in any way undercut the seriousness of that scene, but they make damn fun of white supremacy. Absolutely. They look at these ridiculous, absurd, hateful people. If you know them, bust their balls. And what do they do? They take the most powerful one there physically, the Cyclops, and they burn out his one remaining eye with by collapsing the flaming cross on him. Yeah, it is nice to see people kick white supremacist ass. It is. It is indeed. And I think that then parlaying directly into the triumph of the heroes as they get their pardon. And unmask, uh, of course, Homer Stokes, who is the like KKK leader of Mississippi. Absolutely. Who's running for uh, who, governor. The KKK is not only running, but about to win. Right. You know, against uh, the incumbent governor Menelaus. Right. So yeah, uh, so many awesome things there in terms of the, the parallels. It's a really good movie. Uh, and I, I really do think what, 
what stuck with me the most on this rewatch, you know, especially rewatching it as a, like a grown person. I find that we, we do this a lot on the midnight myth is like, we, we revisit stories that we first encountered when we were really young or like too young and stupid to really understand what was going on underneath. And now it, it takes on a whole new meaning and it's, it's really, it's amazing to watch something so symbolic of the mythicization, mythology, mythologization. Making it a myth. Making it a myth of our American recent past. Uh, and you just gasp like you want to say something. Go yeah, ahead. No, I just got uh, something that I wanted to bring up and I wanted to ask you. And then I, yeah. I, I lit up. Why do you think... I'll throw this to you and I'll throw it to the listeners. Why do you think all of the music is not a background score, but sung by the characters? I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, it's a, all of it. A huge part of this movie is the music. And I think music and American history are so inextricably tied. Uh, you know, on our soil, we saw the... Uh, the creation of new forms of music like blues and jazz and rock and roll. And it's no, it's no mistake that all of this music is included, you know, folk and Americana as well. But these forms of music that are included more often than not have African-American roots and even further back have African roots and are forms of music that were born out of you know, black men working on the chain gang or slaves who were, you know, dreaming up running away and escaping. Yeah, but why do you think they did it that way? Yeah. So, like, they so, could have included that music as a background. Like, think of Martin Scorsese in Goodfellas. Of course, The yeah. way he used music was masterful, but it's always background. Right. In this, they made the conscious choice to make everybody singing the songs. And I think a, a part of that is to increase, like, the the live feel of it like this is this is the kind of world where people sing to get through shit this is the kind of world where you know singing a song is something that will actually sway a person to think differently you see the campaigns are always including music. music um or you see the men on the chain gang who are singing a song so that they can get through the work day uh or you see the sirens who are singing so they can attract uh men to their Riverside, or you see the the lotus eaters, the the Baptists who are singing in the the lake because they're trying to connect with the Lord. They're trying to connect with their spiritual roots, and I think because it's all sung, it's not like instrumental music that we're being uh, being swayed by. The human voice has a really powerful impact on us, and the lyrics have a powerful impact on us because they are so tied to our folklore and our mythology and our religions uh, in, in a way that we connect with in another way. You know, like, I, I couldn't stop singing along with uh, You Are My Sunshine because that's a song that my parents used to sing to me as a lullaby. Same. Yeah. I, I agree with everything you said. I'd like to add one other layer to the music. Please do. That came to me as you know, being inspired by the things that you were saying. Yeah. Um, I also think it's a nod to the Greek play form with mm -hmm. the chorus. Absolutely. You know, I think that's a conscious choice to be like, we're going to structure it as a Greek play. Yeah, we're going to give it a chorus. And it'll have a chorus that sings like the Greek play where that we get the chorus from a group of people that are singing. 
I think yeah, part or, of it, or chanting, yeah, yeah, is just that that nod to to that and having an actual almost every scene has someone singing a song. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I think you're is totally right. Is, is part of it too? Yeah, I think you everything you totally said is true right. too. I think you you nailed it as yeah. well. I think that that's that seems to be another thing that you know one of the things I love about this podcast and the way we do them. Oftentimes, yeah, we think of these things in the moment as we feed off of each other. Yeah, we come in with nothing, just so you guys know. <laughs> I mean, we, we do a lot of pre-research. I wouldn't say we come in with nothing, but so much of it is, you know, the you know, just being inspired by the dialogue, which I truly hope inspires you guys too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you add it all up. Where, well, boomerang here. For, Go for if it. you're just tuning in, we picked up some new subscribers. Way back in the early episodes, I once want to say, um, I want to say curveball. Oh, I've got a curveball, but I accidentally said boomerang. So now we call these new topics that we introduce that we don't plan boomerang. So boomerang for you. Where does Oh Brother, Where Art Thou rank amongst other Coen Brothers movies to you? Oh my God. Or, and I open that up to listeners to hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Where does it rank? Coen Brothers fans. I'm a big fan. I don't think I've seen all of their movies because they've done a lot, but I've seen most and I've seen most more than once. Yeah. There's also, I, I'm feeling a conflict between best and favorite right now because my favorite Coen Brothers movie is the Hudsucker Proxy. Like, no, no, best. Let's not, I let's know. not do favorite because fa favorite gets then, because anything can be your favorite. Which one do you think is the best? Now, they can be the same. Your, your favorite cat you can also say is the best. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, my God. But I want to know, which one do you think is their best? And if you haven't seen it, obviously, then, you know, you can't comment, but. Uh, oh, God. It's so hard. It's so, so hard. You go first. All right. So just to, like, throw some out there, just to get context, you mentioned the Hudsuckers Proxy yeah, one of Raising my other Arizona. Favorites is Barton Fink. Barton Fink. Uh, Miller's Crossing. Um, Hail Caesar. Um, God, there's so many. Fargo. The serious Man. The Big Lebowski. I've never seen The Serious Man. I didn't see that one either. It came out a couple of years ago. The True Grit, No True Country Grit, for Old no Men. No Country for Old Men. Um, all, I mean, every time they make a movie, it's amazing. Yeah, they're really good at making movies. I think their best is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I think it it very well might be. I'm not ready to answer this question with any degree of finality. I, yeah, same here. I reserve the right to change my mind. If someone can make an argument why The Big Lebowski is their best, that's a really good argument yeah, to be I made. Yeah, I will totally hear that. I will listen to that argument, and you might persuade me if you're really good at arguing. Yeah. Um, um, but um, I would say, to me, it has to be. And I think because, well, I'll say this. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou is a true midnight myth story. It's yeah. taking something that was originally written down, you know, in 600 BC that, so if, if Odysseus lived, he lived around 1200 BC. So it's a, it was a little while ago. So around 600 years after the time of when the Trojan War happened, someone finally writes down this story. 600 years later, we have the birth of Christ. 2000 years later, we have the Midnight Myth podcast. And here that's all major markers in storytelling history. Absolutely. And, and just to give the idea of how long the story is and what that story can do when it's reimagined, recontextualized, uh, put through the prism of 
two great American storytellers and they turn it into what would the American Odyssey be? When, like they had all American history to place it. When would they place it? How would they place it? Yeah. And this is what they came up with. To me, is just like jaw-dropping. It's amazing. I don't think Oh Brother Where Art Thou won any Oscars, which is a damn fucking shame. But We should fact check that. Yeah, I don't know. Might have been nominated for something. But you know, like, No Country for Old Men won Best Picture, right? No Country for Old Men... It's a great movie or yeah, one best director. Really, they want a shit really ton. Good. That's a great, that's a great movie. That movie is about fucking the nothingness of the universe. Yeah, It's about nihilism. It's about soulless despair, random chaos, determining life and death. And like that movie made me feel empty and hollow inside, which is what it was supposed to do. And it's a great movie. Yeah. Whereas, Oh brother, where art thou? It was sincere in the way that it gave me hope and the way it made me want to rethink the American ideals of philosophy, the amalgamation of American spirit and will, how we lie about our own history and how we're honest about our own history intersect at one point in this movie. And just like, there, there's nothing else like that that I can think of, you know, which is amazing because they just took a 2,000 or 2,500-year-old story and retold it. That is Fucking phenomenal, and I'm sorry I'm getting a little passionate about it. <laughs> That's an amazing point. I'm. I would say drop the mics, but of course they they're on stands. stands. Uh, that's incredible. Should, I, we, should we go to the game? I want to wrap up real quick. Wrap by up. Saying, oh, and we had a question that we wanted to go back to. Yeah. At the beginning. Yes. So well, do you, do you want to do the question or do you want to wrap up? I want to wrap up. Then and then you? we'll do the question okay. and then we'll do the game. Okay. All right. So I just want to wrap up with a, something that Carl Jung, the, the famous philosopher, said, uh, sort of in the Joseph Campbell tradition as well. He said, all the stories in the world are really one story. And this is something we come back to a lot on the Midnight Myth podcast. Uh, the fact that, you know, the great stories that we keep telling might be still with us because they're born out of one story that really lives in our hearts and our bones. Uh, and the Odyssey is one of those stories that is so old, it's so ancient, it's so, uh, it's so epic. It's such a, it's such an amazing journey, and it's propelled by, uh, by the human condition. It's character driven. It's about how we deal with obstacles and how we fight for what we want. I think there's a reason that still stays with us. And you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I talked about Ulysses by James Joyce. And Joyce was able to take that ancient foundation and build in something that is about the human experience in the time he was living and dealing with the political issues of Ireland and uh, Great Britain at that time uh, and deal with, you know, an adulterous wife and deal with a young man who is questioning everything he's learning at university and dealing with sexual urges and all these kinds of things that we deal with on an everyday basis, but put it in the framework of that ancient odyssey. And, you know, we also saw Richard Adams, the author, create an odyssey with rabbits in Watership Down. He had a couple of rabbits who, who all line up with Odysseus and Cassandra and, and who saw, you know, the, the writing on the wall that the earth was changing. And so they embarked on this great journey to find a new home 
And we see this story over and over and over again. And I think there is something that we're seeking as human beings that we continue to go back to that journey. And we continue to go back to the human condition that keeps us moving, that keeps us embarking on these great journeys and what takes us home. And with that, I'd like to try and answer your question from the beginning of the podcast. In case you don't remember, because we've been talking for a while, it was, what is the greatest form of treasure? And in O Brother, Where Art Thou? It starts with three characters on a hunt for treasure. Turns out this hunt for treasure was a lie perpetrated by the main character to help motivate the people that he is chained with in the chain gang to help him escape. But we really, we realize what is the greatest treasure in this movie. It's your family and finding your way back to your family. It's home. And And home might be a place. Home might be a person. Home might be your family. And in the process of doing that, when we see the main character who starts as a liar and a con man become a really good man, as you mentioned, the two people that, you know, break out with him. Now, in the Odyssey, the sailors that get lost at sea with Odysseus all die. Right. Well, the sailors on this Odyssey, the crewmen, if you will, with Ulysses Everett McGill, become his best friends. Yeah. And I think that is an amazing lesson for us to learn in the things that we aspire for and to with the indomitable human will and spirit. Are we aspiring for our glory? Do we want treasure? Because if we are, we might be neglecting the greatest treasure of all, just just to be loved. It's just like when they encounter the blind prophet on the railroad who is who lines up with Tiresias, the the ever ubiquitous blind prophet of Greek mythology, who says you will find a treasure, but it it won't be the treasure that you seek. Exactly, and they do find they find friendship and family and home. And those are the greatest treasures. And, uh, you know, with that, we should move to the game. Let's play a game. Do your thing, Laurel. Right. So every week here at the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game to have fun with you and have fun with some of the characters and situations we've been talking about. Uh, And, yeah, we would love for you to play along at home. So please, if you have an answer to this question that we're going to put out to you, uh, hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at the midnight myth or drop us a line on the website it's www.midnightmyth.com and just uh just to say before we move to the game if you're enjoying what you hear please do stop by us on apple podcasts and leave us a, a rating or a review just takes two minutes and we would love it it helps us to get out there so without further ado would you like to tell us what the game question is today yep very very simple rules to the game guys you can be any Greek hero. It has to be Greek uh, with, you know, in the theme of the Odyssey. So it must be a Greek hero, but you can be any Greek hero at all. They're all up for grabs, but it's, you are no longer you. You are now this Greek hero. Which one would you be and why? I'll go first. Go first. I am going to twist the rules on this a little bit because I don't think the punishment will be that harsh. Unacceptable. You will be tied to a rock and geese will eat out your innards. my liver. Yeah. Every day. Okay. I think that's fair punishment for what I'm about to do. Um, 
when we came up with this question, I was a little frustrated because I wanted to pick a woman because we just saw Wonder Woman. And of course, I'm, you know, I love female heroes, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and so on and so forth. And I was like, ah, there's not really too many, you know, female heroes in Greek mythology except for the goddesses. And we can't, can't really do that. So I'm going to sort of twist it a little bit and I'm going to pick Medea. Okay. Because so she's not actually in in the perspective of the Jason story, she's not a hero. She's a little bit more of a villain at some points. She's not actually Greek. But I think she's not oh. That's okay. She's part of the Greek she's story. She's part of the yeah, she's She's, she's part of the part Greek of story. Uh so why don't you give a quick like bio if someone doesn't know who Medea is? Yeah, so Medea shows up in the uh in the Jason and the Argonauts story. Uh Jason is seeking the golden fleece. And he comes upon Medea. She's a princess, and he uh, becomes betrothed to her. She's sort of into magic and whatever on the side. They get married. He totally fucks her over and marries somebody younger and leaves her, uh, even though he promised he was going to take her with him. And she proceeds to destroy his life with her magic. That's kind of like the Wikipedia version of it. We'll probably talk more about Medea at some point, get more details in there. But I think she's like a super amazing feminist icon from Greek mythology because like this guy like really fucked up and there's like no reason he should be considered a Greek hero because he's an asshole. Jason's an asshole. Uh, And what he did to Medea is unacceptable. But instead of like crawling back into her hole, I think she like, you know, she takes inspiration from like the earth and becomes this powerful uh, enchantress and like, totally destroys him and i love it that is the most rose-colored way to paint her and that's that's amazing that's amazing colored paint uh you know greek witches that's that's amazing she's a witch yeah that's really what she is you know yeah i I think from now on anytime we play a game i'm just gonna pick witches from different types of that's totally cool you can totally be medea there's nothing wrong with it at all awesome who do you think i'm gonna pick perseus definitely not no achilles Yep. Ooh. You guessed. Second I'm really guess. I'm surprised you didn't pick Perseus. Ooh. Yeah, you know, so Perseus is a stiff. Interesting. Yeah, he's not that fun. But he's a winner. Yeah, yeah. So Perseus does a lot of cool shit, but so I identify with Achilles. Okay. Yeah. You know, as uh, someone that is aggressive and headstrong and often feels invincible, and that's a big freaking weakness because I'm not invincible. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm someone that doesn't like to cow down and bow to anyone and listen. Like, I'm very headstrong. I'm very much like Achilles. Right. You know, and I like that Achilles can, like, thwart the entire Trojan War because he just doesn't like what Ag- Agamemnon's doing to him. You know, I like that he is tragic flaw is his pride. Um, very classic. Um, I like that he is also the the model of manhood that defined, um, you know, Greek and then Roman um, nobility and virtue for a thousand years. Yeah. You know, so Alexander the Great based his entire career off of Achilles. For better or worse, he was a mass murderer. Right. Uh, Julius Caesar, in the vein of Alexander the Great, based upon Achilles— you know, and uh, his greatest enemy, Hector, is someone that he had profound love and respect for, even it though he killed him. Interesting, yeah. I like the idea that he can be like, you know what? I 
I hate this man. He's my enemy. I'm going to kill him. And then, uh, no, you know, that's not right. I respect him so much. I'm going to give his body back to his father to make sure he gets his proper burial because he's the greatest warrior other than me. You know, and I like the idea that he develops a respect and brotherhood for Hector and for the Trojans, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's Achilles. He's a great choice. Shame yeah. about that heel though. Well, it's not the heel. It's his pride, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, one really quick fun fact about Achilles that I love. Uh, last week we talked about Stannis Baratheon and how he lines up with the Agamemnon and Iphigenia myth. And in some versions of the Iphigenia myth, she's actually betrothed to Achilles. And there are some versions where she's kind of bait and switched with him, where she thinks she's going to marry Achilles and then she gets sacrificed at the top of a mountain. It's really sad. Yeah. Everything goes back to, uh, to Stannis Baratheon. It's true. All right, guys, it's been a lot of fun. Until next time, be kind. Be kind, friends. <laughs>